Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I'm going to talk to George Eaton and Stephen Bush about the latest from the Labour leadership contest, yes it is still not over, Tony Blair's intervention and Yvette Cooper's slightly less controversial intervention. Then Anna Leskovitz, Caroline Crampton and I are going to reflect on Benedict Cumberbatch's Hamlet. What does it mean when you cast a movie and TV actor in a big theatre role? Well, you join us as ballots are about to drop in the Labour leadership election and the contest is chugging into its final phase. I'm joined by Stephen Bush, editor of The Staggers, and George Eaton, our political editor. George, I'm going to start with you first because um, Yvette Cooper has been on the attack uh, this morning. Uh, What did she have to say about Jeremy Corbyn? Yes, so this was quite a significant speech from Yvette Cooper. To date, she's run a very cautious, um, some would say conservative campaign. This is a serious attack on Jeremy Corbyn. And she hasn't just attacked him on the basis that uh, she doesn't believe he could he could win an, win an election, but has challenged his policies. So she attacked his plan to renationalize energy companies as transferring power from one group of white middle-aged men to another, um, she said that leaving NATO, as he proposes, would be a betrayal of Labour's internationalist principles. And she tried to break uh, the left's monopoly on on the term radical and radicalism. She said, you know, I want to smash Labour's glass ceiling. I want to be the party's first female leader. Who's the real radical, Jeremy or me? Um, at this stage, though, the question is really, will, will any of this work, given the momentum Corbyn has? And certainly Liz Kendall's supporters feel that... Yvette Cooper should have gone on the attack against Jeremy Corbyn much earlier in the contest. It's fascinating, isn't it? Okay, so I'm probably going to say something that's going to be very unpopular here, but I do find it quite alarming that for a generation, particularly we're supposed to be all these kind of young people are supposed to be uh, Corbyn supporters, that cares about identity, that cares about feminism, that cares about gay rights, that cares about um, the problems faced by black and minority ethnic Britons, does still seem to be most comfortable with a middle-aged white man in authority, which is what authority has always looked like. I mean, Cooper has got a, a point there. There are a lot, you know, it's a fifty-fifty gender split in the leadership race, and yet in all the, you know, in all in both both races, a, a white man is ahead. Yes, I mean, the left do take the view that the classic Marxist view was that the the defining struggle is the class struggle, and that everything is secondary, subordinate to that. And Yvette Cooper did make that point. Yes, I mean, here we are in 2015 and Labour is set to elect two, two white men as for leader and deputy leader. Um, but you know, whether the, the members are 
sort of in any mood to take their point on seems seems quite doubtful. No, um, and Stephen, talking about members being in a mood to take on um, helpful, constructive criticism, Tony Blair has uh, stepped off a private jet, his shirt unbuttoned, to say that the party is, is sleepwalking off a cliff and someone needs to rugby tackle them. My problem with it is, I think he has a right to intervene. I mean, he is, you know, what the only person left to have led a Labour to an election victory alive. Hmm. But... It does seem to have provoked an outburst of, I hate the Millennium Dome, what about the Iraq War, we've got our party back. Was that always inevitable? Is it too late for Tony Blair to make an intervention now? I mean, the thing is, so I'm torn. On the one hand, it it was always inevitable, right? On the other hand, I'm going to run out of hands very quickly. On the other hand, ultimately... Yeah, there are lots of aspects of, of Blair's legacy that you can disagree with. Uh, there were lots of aspects of it which, you know, I personally think were brilliant. But if you don't think he at least has some insight to how a left-wing party wins power in Britain, I, I'm not entirely sure that anyone can help you. Um, I also think this idea that there are people yesterday who weren't voting for Corbyn, who now are because Tony Blair wrote an article for The Guardian, is for the birds. Uh, it just seems implausible to me. It also seems more normal. It's kind of it's a it's a daddy. What did you do in the war thing? People from Tony Blair's bit of the Labour Party think if Jeremy Corbyn leads Labour into the twenty twenty election, there is a good chance that it will destroy the Labour Party. They yeah you know, they they think that the Tories will be in office for decades. It, it seems more weird to me than Gordon Brown, who we know agrees with everything Tony Blair wrote yesterday, is staying silent. It seems more strange to me than Ed Miliband who is also contemplating... I mean, basically, if Jeremy Corbyn wins and it is as bad as the right of the Labour Party fear it would be, he will have been a minister for nothing. I mean, none of the things that Labour government did will survive the, you know, perpetual Tory government. It seemed, and also, I think, you know, fear is a very effective political message. That's what we but saw in the referendum really in the election. this what I find really interesting about the Corbyn platform, right, yeah. is that, to me... There are really interesting thinkers on the left. Um, you yeah. might say David Graeber's talking about debt, for example, people proposing universal basic income because they think that automation is going to hollow out middle-class jobs. Mm. Paul Mason's ideas about post-capitalism. Now, some of those ideas might turn out to not survive, A, a manifesto pledge, people won't like them, or B, total, turn out to be unimplementable in practice. But they are at least new. And this is my... What I don't really understand... To me, that so much of Corbynism seems to be about resetting the clock back rather than finding something really new and distinctive about the radical left. I don't know how you, you feel about that, George. Mm, I think that's a very good point. And um, the Corbyn campaign does feel very nostalgic, very retro. I mean, talking about bringing back Clause 4, a lot of Reopening the, the coal mines, which yeah. is when I just, I don't understand why a, a radical left winger wouldn't have more, be more attuned to the prospect of climate change, which is going to you know, vastly change the world of work and affect poor people most i mean i think two reasons why corbyn has flourished in in spite of that Uh, i think the first is that two young activists actually some of these tunes are new that they they didn't they can't remember the 1980s they uh they've and 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 secondly it's uh that the other candidates have run very dull uninspiring campaigns and so for Jeremy Corbyn simply to be the anti-austerity candidate is enough to energise uh, a movement. Yeah, I also think, I mean, I think it's also, it's more than that. There's a, it's almost, 
pre, a prelapsarian social democracy is what he's offering. It's this idea that Blair and Brown took over the party in 1994 or 1992, if you actually care about historical accuracy. Um, but um, and yeah, you know, and from Smith and Brown and then Blair and Brown, they got rid of all of the things which scared the late people away from the Labour Party, and um, and they sort of betrayed the tradition of Labour. The fact that he is a throwback is part of the appeal. Is this actually this idea of going back? Yeah, actually, because the second you start saying, well, what's the, what are the trade unions doing to sign up Uber drivers? That actually puts you in quite an uncomfortable position. The second you go, I mean, yeah, actually, so Owen Jones, who's like the most eloquent advocate for Corbyn other than Corbyn, uh, I mean, wrote an article a couple of months ago in which he decried the idea that technology had anything to do with the destruction of middle-class jobs. That is sort of part of that bit of the left's appeal, is this idea that they don't face the future. I actually think, yeah, it's, an, it's kind of, it's a, it's a like, you know, everyone thinks the past was better than the future. That's why the Tories win so much. But that, I find that fascinating because it suggests that the only, you know, the outcome of, of this election is going to have to be a lot of compromises by Jeremy Corbyn if he, if he wins, right? You cannot wrench the party to a position so far, the parliamentary party, I mean, to a, a position so far away from its current one just by sheer force of, of will. Um, and I don't know what you, I mean, Stephen, I know you've written in your column this week about you think that actually Corbyn would be safe for a, for a, a while because there's no obvious successor to the other factions and no one really wants, well, there'll be no broad support for a day one coup when they feel they just rerun the leadership election under the same rules and probably people would then decide the best way to upset them would be to return him again. But I, I, I'm, I'm George, I'm interested, you know, do you think he's, that Jeremy Corbyn is going to have to give up some of those signature policy commitments or can, can he actually lead a Labour Party that, is, that does have that? No, I think he would have Platform. to give some of them. Certainly if he wants to form anything resembling a significant or, or coherent front bench team. I mean, for instance, the withdrawal from NATO is one, one policy that obviously a lot of people and a lot of MPs disagree with. And um, he said he wants a broad church, that he does want Blairites in his uh, shadow cabinet. And, and the reason he's saying that is because it is very hard for Labour to look like a coherent, serious opposition without that. And um, if he wants that, then he will have the compromise on, on some areas of policy. And Stephen, he wants Belairites in his shadow cabinet. Is he going to get them? Honestly, I don't know. Everyone privately and publicly at the moment is saying no. My feeling is the win will be bigger than a lot of people expect. There is still this idea in a lot of Westminster, and they look at the numbers, they talk to their members, but a small voice in the back of their head thinks it will be Yvette somehow. Somehow Yvette Cooper will find a way to win. And I think a lot of the people saying, I won't serve, if he wins by as big a margin as the polls, and I personally think the polls will be proved right on this occasion, then I think a lot of people will go, well, one, I don't want to have to face my members. They all have to get reselected because of boundary changes, probably. Mm -hmm. And I doubt the Corbyn-led Labour Party is going to fix those selections for MPs. So suddenly a lot of people, I think, will want to at least show some idea of... Uh, Mucking of, in. Of mucking in. Uh, yeah, not least because the, the big problem is, so who were the main uh, anti-Miliband anti anti candidates last time, you know, throughout his leadership? Yvette Cooper and Andy Burnham. Yvette Cooper and Andy Burnham are done. I mean, if they are, if they are defeated, they're, they're finished in, in politics. Um, who is the leader of the Burnhamite faction? I mean, that's not really a faction. That's a loose alliance of left-wingers, diehard Blairites... Um, old brownites, people who want jobs, the most enduring power faction in, in any parliamentary party, that will scatter to the winds. 
Yvette is the inheritor of the sort of Brownite faction, but whenever the leader moves, they lose a bit. So, you know, so Brown stepped down and Ed Ball's got most of it. And you look at Yvette's backers and most of that is still that kind of faction, but there are, you know, people like Michael Duggar are working for Andy Burnham. I suspect that, you know, I mean, actually, because the most natural inheritor of that tendency, Rachel Reeves, is backing Andy Burnham. That will get smaller as well. You know, you've, you've got to have an alternative candidate, and I think it will probably take until about 2016 for there to be someone who is not Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and then you have the problem of, do you want to, you know, do you want to be, if you are leading a putsch, the person who hands power into the hands of your enemy? I mean, there are lots of people who are worried that under a Burnham leadership, for example, they would be uh, shut out of power. And because Burnham is, you know, better organised, has a power base in the PLP, they'll have no option of, of killing him. Whereas the advantage to Corbyn, in some ways, to people who think they might not get the result they want in this leadership election is it's very easy to see how he might be killed off. That's interesting. And I also think there's a, a potential really, really unexplored interesting thing about what might happen in Scotland, George, because the SNP have said our voters aren't just nationalists. They aren't, it's not just an anti-politics sentiment. It is an anti-austerity vote. And I think that probably that is going to be put to a very hard test if we have a Corbyn-led Labour Party, because he will be if anything, to the left of the essay. I mean, you could argue that the Labour's 2015 manifesto was already to the left of the... But his rhetoric will also be very firmly on the left. What kind of challenge does that present in Scotland for them? Mm, it does mean that the SNP are going to face some sort of serious challenges to their, to their messages in a way they're not familiar with, that they've been able to outflank all parties on the left, at least at least rhetorically, although, of course, their manifesto, if you look at it, their fiscal platform wasn't much or even was even more austere than, than Labour's. Um, but I think we're about to find out that actually quite a lot of, or even most of the people who vote SNP are primarily nationalists. And there is this, obviously an anti-austerity wing, um, some from the traditional left who are supporting them for those, for those leftist reasons. But uh, the fundamental reason people are backing them is because they think they're the only party that can defend Scotland's interests. And uh, then you've got the 45% obviously who, who voted for independence. Um, and so I don't actually think that uh, Corbynism is the solution to, to Labour's problems in Scotland. I think it's... It... Nothing is the solution <laughs> to Labour's problems in Scotland I'm, is the conclusion I'm coming to yeah. from talking to lots of people up there. I mean, there, there is a general feeling of, you know, um, the SNP is so... Its its media machine is in, in, incredible. Its supporters are so active and loyal. You know, it has an activist base that is incredibly energised, and now it has all the money and infrastructure that comes with having fifty six MPs. It is a formidable machine. Um, sorry, Stephen, I interrupt you then. Uh, uh, the former head of press for the Green MSPs, James McKenzie, has a line that I always wish I'd come up with, which is. The difficulty with fighting the SNP is they are to the right on devolved issues and to the left on reserved issues, which remain at Westminster. Said, and that is the kind of classic problem for all of the other parties of the left. And, and also, the thing, the, the other problem for Corbynism is that because of Scotland's, uh, I would argue, better electoral system, there are other parties of the far left you can vote for. Ultimately, if you want to vote for a party of the far left, even if Corbyn is exactly where the Greens are, the Greens don't have any social, moderate social democrats in there. You know, they don't have someone like Yvette Cooper, Liz Kendall, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Liam Byrne. 
you'd always go for that. That is the other problem with Corbynism. It is moving from a marketplace which is currently entirely vacant, you know, kind of centrist social democracy, which no one is really going for at the moment, um, into this quite crowded area where in Scotland, thanks to their superior electoral system, you can pick a better alternative than the Labour Party anyway. But the good thing is I think it will put all of the Labour Party on the same page. They will finally realise that Scotland is not about left or right. It is about two things, nationalism and MPs who treated it like an imperial province, who did no canvassing, very little uh, casework, you know, and were effectively were absent landlords for, for 30, 40 years. And it will probably take 30, 40 years of trying to win that trust back before they can make a dent in it. Well, at some point when before the holiday... Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. We can do a special edition of the podcast about the Dehont system and, and the merits thereof, but um, I think we've probably delighted people long enough on that subject for now. But for the moment, Sal, say thank you to Stephen and George. It's that time of year again, time for theatre-goers to get their knickers in a twist over a famous actor playing a Shakespearean role. Last year it was Martin Freeman playing Richard III, and people clapped. Can you believe it? They clapped at him. Um, this year Benedict Cumberbatch is giving us his Hamlet. Uh, Caroline Crampton joins me along with Anna Leskovitz, and I'm going to come to you, Caroline, first, because you've seen an early preview of the Cumber Hamlet. There has been a lot of kind of sound and fury and, and rending of garments about the possibility that it's going to be all overexcited teenage girls sort of swooning and fainting and taking selfies with the stage in the background. Is that what it was like? Not at all. Being in the audience for it was, in many ways, just like being in any other theatre audience I've ever been in, in that it was mostly, I was one of the younger people in the audience. It was mostly young professionals, people, middle-aged people, retired people, the kind of people generally who you expect to be able to afford the sort of West End prices for theatre tickets. Which are like about 50 quid, aren't they? Something like that. I mean, the tickets And are... even more. Yeah. If, yeah, if not more. Especially if you want to sit in the stalls or anywhere close to the stage. Um, what I would say is, this is entirely anecdotal from me attempting to assess the audience from my position, that it seemed like it was more more women than men were there. I've no idea if that's typical of theatre audiences generally or just when Benedict Cumberbatch is performing, but that was striking. Um, there also seemed to be quite a lot of women. The audience at Mamma Mia when I went was quite female. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I know what you mean though. And there is a, there is a, I don't think, I've been to now a punishingly large amount of Shakespeare plays. And uh, the one thing obviously striking is often there are a lot of schooled groups of mm. sort of slightly disgruntled looking 13 year olds chewing gum in the front row. But I, I, I don't think I've ever been to one that's been that heavily female. There also what struck me is even just around where I was sitting there were quite a lot of like female friendship groups who'd come together. I think generally theatre is, uh, I, I apologise if I'm hugely generalising here, something you either do with your partner or with your parents. It's like a kind of 
core family activity. It's not necessarily like a kind of girls six, night six out. women on a, a socialising night out. But there was some of that, which I think... And I did overhear some conversations that were entirely Cumberbatch focused among <laughs> these groups. Um, and I think this is a really interesting point to pick up because for me, it seems that you have this discussion a lot about fandom, is that mm. fandoms are often... The ones that are principally... So if they're principally male, they kind of get like, oh, sad, spotty virgins. And if they're principally female, they get, oh, hysteric teenage girls who don't, you know who just kind of wet their pants with excitement and thought, you know, don't really appreciate the art behind it. It, I, I mean, do you agree with that? Do you think there is often a kind of sexist approach to, to fandom? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it's also just a belittling thing in general about teenagers where it's like their interests haven't fully matured or something like that, which I think is rubbish because I think all of us know that some of the stuff we loved as teenagers is the stuff that stays with us throughout the rest of our lives, like bands and things like that. It's also really curious to me that there's this sort of undertone of kind of horror at the idea of all these young women particularly going to see Hamlet when the rest of the time, like we have an entire educational system that is geared to trying to make <laughs> to young people go and watch Hamlet. I had to see some truly god-awful Shakespeare plays as part of my GCSE and, and A-level English syllabus. Especially if you grew up not in London and your regional theatre. I saw... It stuck with me, as you say, forever. Mm. A terrible all-male production of The Winter's Tale, um, which, oh, it was just appalling. And I remember it so so vividly. Yeah. On the other hand, my appearance as Lysander in our school's all-female uh, Midsummer Night's Dream was much commented upon. Um, <laughs> I remember seeing a Faustus, um, which they managed to incorporate a teen pregnancy plotline into. And it Making was, it relevant for the kids. Absolutely. It was so embarrassing. Um, and yeah, a lot of young people really love Shakespeare. That's mm. just a, a fact. Mm. But uh, Caroline, with uh, the real talk hat on and setting aside that you have seen an early preview, the press night isn't for a couple of weeks. They have made a couple of slightly, I would suggest, star vehicle driven artistic choices with this production of Hamlet, haven't they? Yes, uh, the one that, so part of the Ferrari about it has been that some of the papers have already published reviews, which general kind of media theatre convention is that you don't review a play until it's official press night. On the other hand, normally the press night is five or six performances into the run of the play. In this case, the play is running for eight weeks and the press night is not until the third week. My point about this is always that I think a lot of theatres do a reduced price preview. So you These go are and not reduced price. Though. So I, you know, mm. I, I, the Donmar is my favourite London theatre by an absolute mile, and they have relatively inexpensive by London terms theatre tickets anyway. But the previews are are cheaper even. And I went to see a play, and people kept forgetting their lines left, right, and centre. But you kind of think, well, I'm here. I'm essentially seeing them work, like slightly workshopping it, mm. and you don't feel ripped off because actually, it's you know, it's when you're a student, it's a way to actually go and see the theatre, which you wouldn't be able to afford to otherwise. And also, there is a kind of feeling that theatre only exists in its live performances, so you have to have some margin for error. But they didn't; uh, these aren't reduced price previews. They're, it's still incredibly expensive. There was actually a great piece um, on the Guardian this week by a woman who'd travelled down from the north of England, paid top whack for a ticket and stayed overnight in a hotel. And she said, nowhere on my ticket does it say it's a preview. Nowhere when I was buying my ticket did it say it was a preview. Mm. Um, I don't really see why it this should be any different. But anyway, in answer to your original question, they have the, the chief decision they've made that has upset critics, definitely upset me, and I just think is downright weird, is to take the to be or not to be, the most famous soliloquy arguably in Shakespeare at all, let alone in Hamlet, out of its context of the play and run it as a kind of prologue. So the curtain rises and there's Benedict Cumberbatch on the stage, sort of dressed a bit hipster, flipping through some records with a gramophone next to him that's playing in the background, and he does this speech straight off 
nothing, just straight into it. I mean, my assessment of that is that, I don't know what you think, Anna, is that that's probably uh, a way to deal with kind of the players when we know problem, which is that every time, I mean, I have seen a couple, I saw David Tennant Ham, it was Hamlet and his was really good but there is a problem because it's so absurdly iconic and everyone's read it at school or has at least heard quotes from it and you know Hamlet is a play that is full of quotes that you will have heard for everyone else mm. but there's a moment of oh he's about to do the speech everybody mm. like you know you can sort of feel that people kind of who've been so quietly dozing kind of perk up a bit and it becomes this problem because it's you know it's a very fine speech but it has this it's freighted with this incredible weight of expectation that this is going to be the, you know, this, uh, sit back because you're about to experience like a moment. Yeah, but that for me is makes that decision even weirder because that speech is so decontextualized in our everyday culture. You hear snippets from it all the time, and they're so far removed from the moment in the play that to put it on at the beginning of the play seems to reinforce that problem rather mm. than subvert it. Absolutely. To me. And the other thing as well was that it doesn't come back again. So I thought when so he's doing the speech of the prologue. I thought, okay, so fine. What they're doing here is they're doing it once out of context, and then we'll when we hear it again in the context of the play in an hour and a half's time, um, it will be all the more meaningful for the contrast. Mm. But it doesn't come back. He just then doesn't do it again. It just disappears. Which then, I think, kind of harms Hamlet's trajectory as a character because you don't get that kind of dark night of the soul moment where he where he makes a speech. Um, so that's the, the main, I think, poor production decision they've made with this. And I... It's impossible to see how that isn't driven by the fact of wanting to give the star more star opportunities. Which really, which annoys me for a very specific reason, which is that Shakespeare already has star parts. I mean, it was written for actors in the company who everybody wanted to see. You know, some of the full parts are written for a very popular actor at the time. The leads are written for people who, you know, it's not, he's not a playwright who didn't right with the possibility that there would be a bloke that people wanted to come and see in a leading role and and in that soliloquy is, is written specifically to give the actor a chance to show off it's just that it's also written to be a very specific point in the play that is a kind of emotional anchor point and my other problem with Shakespeare <laughs> he says Clutter mounting her soapbox that guy um, is the problem that no it's not a problem with Shakespeare I think Shakespeare is a, an incredible playwright and poet but it's about the valorization of Shakespeare and this idea, the way he's become our kind of national poet, is that that has a really unfortunate um, effect on the, the availability of roles for actresses. Mm. Um, because it's because the way that, what you do as a bloke is you do your, you give us your Hamlet, then you give us your Macbeth, and then you know when you're quite old and knackered, you give us your King Lear, and that's been you know you it's it's I think it's actually um, Ian McKellen talked about. The, the, like what it feels like as an actor to think, oh right, okay, that's it. I have my Macbeth days are over. I'm a Lear now, um, and it's it's very it's very obvious. But there isn't quite, and it it crowds out women from doing those big roles. If you assume that you know the National Theatre will do a, a Shakespeare play every year, every other year, the Barbican now feels it has to do one. Obviously, the RSC is entirely dedicated to doing Shakespeare plays and and other contemporaneous ones. But it means that there is a kind of lock on our theatre that is that is excluding women mm. yeah and i think we, for all these sort of all-female performances that come around i think similarly about once a year you get a, a good all-female performance of a shakespeare play i think the problem with that is that reviews seem to focus so much on what that does for the play and because it has been done so many times it, it, it loses some of its 
radicalness. I like the fact that they say so um, Fiona Shaw, for example, a couple of years ago played Richard II, mm. and it wasn't like it was a woman. She was just she was playing Richard II. She wasn't playing any kind of you know. There was it was exactly the same part, and she just happened to be an actress filling it rather than an actor. And I I think that's an interesting thing to do because there are you know I could definitely imagine just just cast Helen Mirren. You know, just cast her as Macbeth. Go on, just do it. I mean, it would be really interesting. Because, and the other thing, people get very huff and puff about it. But the whole point about Shakespeare now is that every director feels that they have to do something different with it. Even if the thing that they do is doing it in full contemporary costume and making it look as much as possible like it's a 16th century production. I mean, they even did a production at the Globe that was in original pronunciation, which is almost impossible to follow if you're kind of, you know, not... into that at all um but yeah i i that's my that's my particular hobby horse <laughs> which i will now dismount but there's there's just um as you said at the beginning this has become an annual event this sort of this war in theater about who's allowed to be there and what you're allowed to do while you're there you know so benedict cumberbatch has kicked this off again this summer by pleading with his fans not to take pictures of him while he's performing because he can see the lights out in the audience and it's really distracting um i do think he's right on that one yeah, he is. People should use their phones in theatres. There are already signs and people checking and asking and all the rest of it. it's so incredibly disruptive because your screen is bright and, mm. they're, and then you're sitting in a dark room and, yeah. But I, and whilst I'm, I'm not disputing his experience that this happened, I sat in the theatre in total darkness for three hours and watched him and was not distracted at all by phones. So I don't think it's, it's not an epidemic in the play. Maybe one or two people have done it. I guess it, and that was the taste of how him. rare it is is the fact that almost every time someone's phone goes off and they get bollocked by Kevin Spacey or whoever, it, make, it, it makes, makes news. the news. It makes news. It's not happening. So um, it, it, he's hardly the first person, nor will he be the last to make this plea. But it's been seized upon as this kind of, oh my goodness, these, these young people who just like Cumberbatch, they're only there to see him. They don't even care about the play. They don't care about Shakespeare. They're not appreciated properly, as demonstrated by the fact they're trying to Instagram during it. It's but- nonsense as well, because I absolutely, you can guarantee that it's like a 65-year-old man who doesn't know how to turn the flash off on his camera who's taking that photo. It's or taking a photo with an iPad, which yeah, is yes. like, it's going to be really blurry. See, see, <laughs> seeing the, the response on Tumblr to Cumberbatch's video saying this it's been astonishing loads hundreds of thousands of reblogs of people saying guys don't do this he doesn't want to as a fandom his, his oh, fandom I, is I very fandom, self-policing the and very, fandom yeah. is, is nothing if not like quite regimented about things that you are and aren't allowed to do that upset benedict Cumberbatch. absolutely so it, it yeah. will almost certainly not be them anyway and even if it was it won't be anymore so it is this just this stereotype of oh it's young people ruining it. But I also think there is a final problem, which is that in the same way that you used to have models on magazine covers, and it was possible to become famous as a model, and now that it tends to be people who are celebrities elsewhere, and actually you know, supermodels kind of complain that that they're that they're being done out of jobs. I know a bit of a first world problem that, but there is the same problem about the fact that theater it's 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 harder to be a theater star Mm. somebody like a simon russell beale who is primarily a theater actor it's much easier now to import someone who's got their celebrity from another mass medium and then give them a a chance to do their their hamlet i think and that that i can understand why as an old crusty old theater goer that is an annoying thing that shakespeare is incredible you know shakespeare is an incredibly demanding 
uh, former, you know, talking, he was using blank verse is very different from people who will have been brought up doing naturalistic acting on TV and and um, and movies. And it's it's a completely different skill. And actually, I think that's one of the times where people come a cropper is that they haven't respected the medium because they mm. haven't really done much Shakespeare. Yeah, and I think arguably, like a Simon Russell Beale would not complain so much about the odd camera in the audience because they're theatre trained and they're used to being on stage a trooper right on that note i'll say thank you very much to anna and caroline you've been listening to the new statesman podcast presented by me helen lewis and produced by anna leskovitz you can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on itunes our theme music is devil with the devil by the underscore orchestra licensed under creative commons Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.